Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Sawcox. In this week's edition of Insight, we've all got the Delta Blues, thanks to the Actuaries Institute. Out of the blue, Steadfast acquire Coverforce in a 400 million deal that we investigate further. Outgoing IAG Chair Elizabeth Bryan is ready for a blue as she apologises for a financial year loss of 427 million. And the AICA think there are some blue skies ahead as they respond to the latest UN Global Climate Change Report. Hello everyone, on the panel today are publisher Terry McMullen, managing editor John Deeks and deputy editor Wendy Pugh. Hello Wendy. Good morning. What's your favourite colour? Uh, well, probably blue. And what does that say about you? <laughs> well, I, I think I'm thinking of it more in terms of the blue skies. Wendy and her blue sky thinking. Well, good morning, John. Morning. What's your favourite colour, John? Well, this is really boring, but it's definitely blue. My football team is Ipswich Town, which no one will have ever heard of, but they play in blue. So that's... That's it, really. And good morning, Terry. Terry, I'm assuming that your favourite colours are blue and orange, based on insurance news. Uh, isn't isn't that interesting? Blue, everybody picks blue, which is such a, you know, in marketing is such a trust me kind of colour. Now, yes, my favourite colours um, is, is definitely insurance news orange which is actually Telstra Orange, which shows how far back we go. Yeah, we'll be cutting that bit. <laughs> All right. That's right. They know. Oh, good. Oh, good. So the company that describes itself as Australia's largest privately owned insurance broker has become part of Australia's largest publicly listed broker network. Tell us about Steadfast's acquisition of Coverforce, Wendy. Steadfast has paid around $400 million for Coverforce in the deal and it closes on um, Friday and they say it'll boost earnings from the get-go. So Coverforce started in 1994 and includes uh, four parts to the business, um, a general insurance broker focusing on SMEs, the Coverforce Partners business where it takes equity in firms, and it's got a group uh, income protection group and um, the Quanta Specialist Underwriting Agency. So um, Stupas says there was a competitive sales process run by an investment bank and they were in a uh, strong position to make the acquisition because they already have a long-standing relationship uh, with Coverforce um, and they say the two uh, businesses complement each other well. Well, John, they're not the first to try and buy Coverforce, are they? No, that's right. Back in 2019, AUB put out a press release announcing an acquisition of Coverforce, but it turned out to be slightly premature. Investor Pemba thought it had drag rights, but this was challenged by the Coverforce ownership who didn't want to sell at that time. And it all ended up in the courts. As it turned out, a judge decided the acquisition could have proceeded after all, but by that time, AUB had moved on. Uh, from a cover force perspective, it, it's probably worked out for the best because they've grown rapidly in the intervening years. Terry, I've got a couple of questions for you. But first of all, what are your thoughts on the deal? Oh, I think it's a fairly standard one. It's, of course, cover force has been through the uh, through some difficulties over the past year or so in terms of acquisitions and things like that. I have to say that we'd heard a, a rumour on the market oh, a couple of weeks ago that uh, cover force may be in play but the management denied it so we we left it alone it's a very it's always a difficult situation when that happens but i think it's a it's a fairly logical sort of deal and and really cover force has gone gone to a, a pretty much a, the the logical place for it to go are there many large independent brokers left out there and if there aren't i mean 
does this matter? Yeah, you know, I often ask companies that want to set up AR outfits where where all the brokerages they want to buy actually are. When you you consider that the huge amount of M and A activity we've seen over the past ten or fifteen years. And the answer is always the same. There are plenty of good brokerages still out there standing strong and independent. I guess, you know, we, we've certainly seen the AR business become, or, or certainly the way that they're formed, becoming quite a bit more complex. When you look at, say, Resilium, which is a well-known name, it's now owned by a British broker and it's part of the Steadfast Network without giving up its independence. And then there's Insurance Advisor Net, which is partly owned by AUB. So brokerages come in all shapes and sizes, and many of them aren't legally welded to their consolidator or, or membership group. And, and brokerages that are wholly owned by a group like Steadfast or AUB can always be merged or sold off to third parties. So everything's basically for sale, Andrew. They may not know they're for sale, but someone is eventually going to come along with an offer they can't refuse. Well, on that note, we'll uh, move on. We talked last week about the comparison between Suncorp and IAG's results. But Wendy, you've sought some expert opinions. What are the analysts' thoughts on it? Well, of course, the, the difference in those headline results, um, you know, does reflect a, a number of uh, one-off items uh, in the case of IAG, and they mostly relate to problems of their own, own making. So they said that they've taken action to improve their technical systems and risk practices, and those issues have been dealt with. But, you know, as the analysts say, it's a matter of taking IAG on their word, really, that, that those things have been dealt with. And then there's the issue of, well, could there be something else lurking in there that they don't know that they um haven't dealt with. But, uh, you know, on an underlying basis, they both of those firms achieved um, uh, strong GWP growth, uh, Suncorp more than IAG, and IAG overall had uh, stronger insurance margins. Um, And there's a big focus uh, now, I think, on um, IAG's uh, intermediated business, which has been underperforming and and, um, the turnaround plans there. Uh, but um, for both of them, of course, you know, they've still got the benefit of this harder market, but then they've, and they've both got these issues of, uh, you know, the natural catastrophe costs and the just increasing costs that they're having to deal with. Terry, I took some artistic license in the intro, but how do you interpret outgoing IAG chairman's Elizabeth Bryan's Mia Culpa? Well, you know, Mia Culpa is, is actually somebody saying through my fault. Um, I didn't see hear anything from Ms. Bryan that could be seen to be anything admitting uh, any kind of problem at all with the board. She heaped the blame for all of IAJ's emerging issues on, quote, management and operational issues and the impact they have had on IAG's returns. In fact, it was somebody else's fault. As Adele Ferguson noted in in yesterday's Australian Financial Review, Ms. Bryan was, and I quote Ms. Ferguson, shifting the optics away from the board's own culpability by pointing the finger at management when the board systems and supervision of management were clearly inadequate. You know, the, there's a lot of things that that are, are in the uh, in the returns this year for. Um, IAG, and we're familiar with most of them, things like a class action payout of $40 million, $238 million for customer refunds arising from past pricing issues, a vital division like 
CGU or the, like the intermediated division that's not pulling its financial weight and so on. But then when you find things like a 51 million hole in payroll compliance on top, well, you know, it didn't all happen overnight. Uh, Del Ferguson notes that a new chief risk officer who was appointed in 2018 identified the holes that IAG is now moving to plug. And she points out that Nick Hawkins, who became the CEO last year, was the chief financial officer at IAG for the previous 12 years. So I'm not at all sure what Ms. Bryan was saying beyond making sure the buck didn't stop at her door. So there you go. Thank you, Adele Ferguson. She's answered your question. It's not unlike you to, uh, to shy away from making your own quotes. Well, John, QBE reported results this last week as well. How did they fare? Yeah, pretty good. QBE reported a first half adjusted cash profit after tax of 463 million US dollars following a $666 million loss a year earlier. Analysts warned that the second half might not be as good as the first, pointing to rising North America crop claims, but they do see a number of positives. Most importantly, that premiums are still rising. So the IPCC has released its latest report on climate change. John, I'm assuming there isn't any good news for Australia? Uh, Yes, that's probably an understatement. The regional fact sheet for Australia is pretty depressing reading for the insurance industry and and really, well, any human being. Um, We need to face up to it, I think, and not bury our heads in the sand. Uh, Often we find our readers don't like to read about climate change. We can tell from the stats on our website, but, um, you know, if we're not aware of it, we can't do anything about it. The report says Australia has warmed by 1.4 degrees since 1910 and that hot and cold extremes are worsening. So this means we're going to get more severe fire seasons, longer fire seasons, but also heavier rainfall and more floods as well. And that's before you even get into sea levels, which are rising faster in Australia than the global average. It really is hard reading, but I guess you've got to you've got to face up to it and think what this could mean for future gen- future generations. Was there much reaction from the insurance industry, Wendy? There actually wasn't a huge amount of um, specific reaction to the report itself, although insurers generally have been highlighting the impacts of climate change on on natural catastrophe trends. The Insurance Council said it welcomed the report, you know, providing further guidance on on an important issue. And it's highlighted industry efforts to achieve the practical action to drive resilience and collaboration, you know, governments to accelerate risk reduction projects. But um, although, you know, overall the emphasis remains on the on the response to managing a, a, an increasing risk rather than uh, campaigning for um, uh, stronger emissions targets. Now, there's a huge amount of regulatory change slated for October, but ASIC has offered an olive branch of sorts, hadn't it, Wendy? Well, yes. I mean, because a lot of these changes have already been pushed back to October to give industry more time because of the complications from the COVID-19 pandemic. So now you've got this great raft of things coming into effect and the um, the uh, pandemic hasn't hasn't gone away. So um, the ASIC chairman has said um, they recognise that the reforms require significant changes and to systems and processes um, at, at a time when there are, you know, renewed lockdowns and, and, st- and still problems. Um, so it says it's going to take a, a reasonable approach in the early stages, provided industry participates um, are making best efforts to comply. So it's suggesting a little bit of leniency for technical or inadvertent breaches, 
but it, it sounds like it will still crack down hard if it thinks firms aren't acting in good faith or, or where there's actual harm. So presumably this isn't a licence to carry on regardless, is it, John? No, I not at all. I think it, it'd certainly be welcome news. Insurance companies have got uh, a lot to deal with at the moment. So the idea that ASIC isn't going to throw the book at them every time they slip up is, is probably very welcome. But um, as Wendy says, these reforms are introduced to tackle serious, genuine concerns. And ASIC says it won't hesitate to enforce the law where firms aren't acting in good faith or um, there's actual harm being caused. Insurance companies absolutely need to be across all these changes. So it's not an excuse for complacency and it, it's really not worth taking chances over how ASIC is going to react to any any failures or breaches. Well, as we reported and talked about last week, the Aon Willis Towers Watson merger is dead and buried. But Wendy, one aspect of it has come back to life. Uh, well, that's right. Um, it has. Um, so uh, originally to try and get the deal past the regulators, they were going to uh, sell off um, Willis Re and various other things to uh, to Gallagher. But of course, uh, when the whole deal was uh, pulled back and, and abandoned, then that side deal also didn't continue either. So now um, there's been a revival of that. So um, uh, Gallagher is going to buy that um, uh, treaty uh, reinsurance business and pay more than a billion dollars for that. And they're forecasting that will um, be sorted out and, and, and the deal will close in the fourth quarter, assuming they get uh, regulatory clearance. So I guess we won't, we won't see the same problems with, with this particular deal. So they'll end up with what they were hoping for in the first place. Could any other bits of Willis Towers Watson be cars off, do you think, Terry? Interesting, isn't it? Willis Towers Watson's an interesting company and, and just the diversity of ways that, that Willis Tower, or rather Towers Watson uh, used to work. And, and what Willis does. But I guess having started on a merger process, really Willis Towers Watson now has a pretty unique opportunity to reinvent itself in whatever form is, is going to best suit it. Um, like most global companies, it more than likely has a number of assets and lines of business that it, it might prefer not to have. Things get interesting here because it's getting over a billion dollars from Aon for a failed merger, now over a billion from Gallagher. So it's well cashed up. So we, we could well see Willis Towers Watson on the acquisition trail actually adding bits on rather than carving them off. It's going to be an interesting couple of years for that company. Well, and finally, the August-September Insurance News magazine will be winging its way to inboxes and mailboxes shortly. What can readers expect from this edition, Terry? All the wonders and delights of a good read, Andrew. Um, our cover story this month is, is Richard Enthoven of Hollard explaining the thinking behind his move to double the GWP of his company by acquiring the Commonwealth Bank's general insurance business. People tell me the magazine is something they can relax with and take time to learn from, and, and there's plenty to learn about right now, that's for sure. For example, there's an examination of the June 30 renewals period as, as well as a deep dive to find out what brokers think about the state of the commercial insurance market. There's everything in there from the looming skills crisis to, to on insurance to a, a profile of PSC. We meet the new chief executives of Howden Broking and Brazilian. Uh, there's a bit in there on, on changing compliance rules affecting AR organisations. We preview the annual dive-in festival and on and on. 
as they might have said long ago in Fleet Street, it's a bumper edition, Andrew. Well, on that note, this brings us to the end of this week's Bumper Insight podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, Terry McMullen, John Deeks and Wendy Pugh. Enjoy your week and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Insight Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, and all your favorite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week. Bye.